Donald Trump is dominating the news yet again today. Uh, he says he's a target in a federal January 6th investigation. The former president got a letter from the Justice Department saying that he is, in fact, a target of a probe into efforts to overturn the 2020 election. He said yesterday that he could soon face more charges. Trump has been charged in a separate federal case in Florida over his alleged mishandling of classified documents. He's also been charged in a state court in Manhattan with respect to hush money payments to former porn star Stormy Daniels. Trump has also sought a new trial after a New York jury in May found him liable for sexually assaulting the former Elle magazine columnist E. Jean Carroll in a Bergdorf Goodman dressing room in the 1990s, then defaming her in a 2022 Truth Social post by calling her allegations a hoax and a lie. The judge, in denying Trump's request for a new trial, said the verdict did not mean that Carol failed to prove that Mr. Trump raped her, as many people commonly understand the word rape. Indeed, the judge went on to say, the jury found that Mr. Trump, in fact, did exactly that. And by that, the judge means rape Miss Carol. And in related news, Michigan yesterday charged 16 pro-Trump electors who falsely claimed to be casting the state's electoral votes in 2020. And in further Trump news, the federal judge presiding over his trial for allegedly mishandling classified documents appeared skeptical yesterday about the former president's request that it be delayed, that is the trial delayed, until after the 2024 election. U.S. District Judge Eileen Cannon also appeared weary of prosecutors' request to begin the proceedings as soon as this year. The judge took the matter under submission and said she would issue an order in short notice. So we will see whether this trial will move forward as the prosecutors have requested in December of this year, or will it be delayed until after the 2024 election as Trump's team has requested. And in other news, a new CDC analysis shows that more people are dying after mixing opioids with cocaine and meth. The rate of overdose deaths involving both opioids and cocaine nearly quintupled quintupled between 2011 and 2021. In 2021, nearly 80% of cocaine overdose deaths involved an opioid. Most deaths appear to result from intentional mixing of the drugs. Now, this is according to researchers. And a Southern California school board has become the latest proxy for culture wars brewing across the country after a conservative bloc voted to formally reject state-endorsed curriculum that would have mentioned gay rights figure Harvey Milk. On Tuesday, a heated Temecula Valley Unified School District Board meeting dissolved into shouts and jeers as parents, teachers, and community members confronted each other over a three-paragraph mention of milk and supplemental materials for students in grades one through five. Well, Asian American advocates are slamming Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, for a land law that they say will legalize Asian hate. Under the Florida law, SB 264, those who are not U.S. citizens or permanent residents whose domiciles or permanent homes are in China are banned from purchasing property in the state. Chinese nationals violating the law could face $5,000 
fines and up to five years in prison, while sellers who knowingly violate the law could face up to one year in prison and $1,000 fines. Colorism is driving women of color to use harmful skin lightening products, says a new study. The researchers surveyed hundreds of people, a majority of them Black women, and many of the respondents reported using skin lightening products with a portion admitting that they didn't know the products contained harmful ingredients, which can cause skin rashes, swelling, discoloration, and even more. Illinois is set to become the first state in the nation to eliminate cash bail after the Supreme Court ruled Tuesday that a landmark criminal justice reform law did not violate the state's constitution. While other states have implemented similar reforms with varying degrees of success, Illinois will be the only one to completely do away with having to pay money to get released from jail. And Wesleyan University, a liberal arts college in Connecticut, is ending legacy admissions, which gives a leg up to the children of alumni. Now, this comes just weeks after the Supreme Court struck down affirmative action in college admissions. This is Ariva Martin in real time, and I'm your host, Ariva Martin. And this is your one-stop destination for today's breaking and trending news, expert analysis, and my unfiltered opinions. In this hour, two of my regular superstar contributors are joining me, Dr. Niambi Carter, she's an author and professor at the University of Maryland, and Jamar Brown, he is a former, former executive director of the Texas Democratic Party, and he is a Democratic strategist. Always a pleasure to have both of them join me. And... Uh, in hour two today, we are talking about uh, the 10-year anniversary of Black Lives Matter, and we're going to examine police reform. Now, after the failure of the movement to try to defund police departments all over this country, what is the status of other efforts to reform police departments? We know there's been lots of research and studies and uh, new policies adopted by the thousands of police departments that serve uh, communities across this country. But has progress really been made? What is the nature of that progress? And where do we go from here? We're going to have a Black Lives Matter founder, as well as one of the nation's leading civil rights attorneys, uh, law professors, author, and experts on police reform joining me in our two. So make sure you stick around uh, to find out what's happening with respect to police reform. Uh, but before I bring on my guests, here's what I'm thinking about in real time. I want to give a big shout out to the uh, Alpha Kappa Alpha sorority, AKAs, that is. They have opened the first Black-owned, sorority-owned credit union. The four members only, or they, by the acronym is FMO, Credit Union, is now the first Black-owned, sorority-based, women-led <laughs> digital banking financial institution in the United States. I want to give them a big shout out. And as one of the country's oldest service organizations, Alpha Kappa Alpha was founded by Black college educated women on the campus of Howard University on January 15th, 1908. 
Uh, the aim of the organization or the mission is to uplift and empower women through sisterhood, scholarship, and service. Now, this new credit union, FMO, is chartered, regulated, and insured by the National Credit Union Administration. The credit union will offer a variety of banking services, including primary savings and loans. Uh, this is during its first year of operations, and there are plans to even expand the services and offerings of the credit union. Uh, the institution is available to AKA members, their immediate family members, uh, as well as AKA staff and credit union employees. The new bank, this new credit union, officially opened today with the lines of the sororities uh, members outside waiting to open up an account. Now, this credit union uh, is opened in Chicago, where the sorority happens to be meeting for one of its big annual conferences. Uh, they have gotten a ton of national uh, publicity and a recognition for this step towards empowering Black women, Black communities, uh, focusing on economics and financial wealth. And I am just so proud to be able to uh, share this story, to congratulate them as well, and to say, job well done. You know, we often talk about uh, the problems in our society. Everybody has a complaint about something. But when people decide to take action and rather than just sit around and whine and complain, but really do something positive that's going to uplift uh, our community, we ought to recognize, we ought to uh, celebrate it and give credit where credit is due. So to that national leadership team uh, at the AKA sorority and to all of its members and to you know everyone that has been a part of creating this first Black sorority-led uh, credit union, kudos to you. Uh, hopefully this is not the last. Hopefully this is a model that can be copied in other cities. Uh, other div divine nine sororities and fraternities also, hopefully they will uh, take a page out of the AKA's uh, playbook and create similar financial institutions because we know there is nothing, and I do mean nothing more important than building financial wealth in our community. That's the only way we are going to close the incredible Black-White wealth gap, which as of today uh, is 10 to 1, which means for every $10 that white America has, Black America has $1. So hopefully this credit union goes a long way in helping to close that wealth gap. Again, bravo to the AKAs. Have a phenomenal conference, and I am wishing you the best of luck with this credit union. When we come forward, more of today's breaking and trending news right here on Ariva Martin in Real Time on KBLA Talk 158. We are back, and you are listening and watching Ariva Martin in Real Time, and I'm your host, Ariva Martin. And in this hour, we are tracking today's breaking and trending news and I'm doing so with two of my superstar contributors. They are regulars on Ariva Martin in real time. That's Dr. Niambi Carter. She's an author and professor at the University of Maryland. And Jamar Brown, former executive director of the Texas Democratic Party and a Democratic strategist. Uh, let's start with you, uh, Dr. Carter. I think 
I might have mentioned three or four stories regarding Donald Trump and his legal problems. There were probably 10. So I had to decide which three or four to talk about without dominating the entire two hours with Donald Trump's legal problems. We could do two hours times 10 and still probably not cover all of the legal issues that he faces. But although a lot of news programs have been focused on this potential federal indictment involving the January 6th investigation. And clearly, if that comes to fruition and he is indicted by the special counsel for his efforts in overturning or trying to overturn the legitimate election of Joe Biden, that's going to be huge. I mean, we've never seen or had a president, former president, face those kinds of serious uh, federal charges. Some of the Anticipated charges carry up to 20 years in federal prison. But the story that really caught my eye today is the story of what happened with regards to the E. Jean Carroll civil case. Trump lost that case. It was tried before a jury. Jury came back, awarded E. Jean Carroll $5 million, said that Donald Trump sexually abused her and defamed her. Donald Trump, as usual, didn't let it go, didn't just pay the woman the $5 million. He filed post-trial motions, which he's entitled to. Those those, those are the rules. Everybody gets to do it. But he filed these post-trial motions seeking a new trial and seeking some clarification with respect to what the jury verdict meant or didn't mean because his team had been out saying that the jury did not find that Donald Trump had raped E. Jean Carroll. They were trying to distinguish this finding from the jury so that Donald Trump wouldn't have the label of rapist. The judge, however, said, one, no new trial. So go away, Donald Trump, pay the money. And two, the judge talked about how the the word rape is narrowly defined in these New York statutes, but basically says for all intents and purposes and the way we commonly understand the word rape, the jury did find that Trump raped E. Jean Carroll. Right. And I mean, That's I think that, amazing. <laughs> well, I think it's amazing that we still consider this person a legitimate political contender. Right. I think that's what's amazing. These are things that would disqualify most people from most things, not just public office, but even terms of employment. Right. So the fact that we have a twice impeached, now a convicted sexual abuser, I think that's the choice that the the jury went with. But I think the judge in this case said, no, it's rape. As you noted, um, you know better than I. I'm not a legal scholar. But and he has what now three indictments? potentially two for sure. And I think a a third, a possible like a spade hand. I mean, this man is racking up indictments. And so the fact that we can even consider him a legitimate person when we know at least he paid this hush money to Stormy Daniels. And, you know, that that should have been a non-issue. He could have just not been cheap and paid the woman hush money. There was nothing illegal per se about that payment besides the fact that he tried to use these funds and funnel it to her because Donald Trump is cheap. And in this case, I think he shot himself in the foot because when he get back to um, appeal this, now we have the judge going on the record and saying this is more than just sex abuse, which can mean anything from a grope to a touch and something more serious. So I think the bigger question here, again, to Republicans is what are you doing? Like the fact that you all are still spending your time 
trying to talk around this, trying to still curry favor with this man, trying to still, um, you know, keep his followers happy rather than just saying, if we are a party of principle and we believe in the things that we say we believe in, like protecting children, traditional family values and all these things, then it should be no question that this man has disqualified himself from holding office because of his actions and behaviors. That shouldn't be hard for anyone to say, regardless of their political leanings. Yet we still have a party that's kowtowing. And it's really only Chris Christie, who everyone knows is not a real contender in 2024, who's kind of holding Donald Trump's feet to the fire and saying what everybody else knows and what everybody else is kind of hushing around Washington and other places. This man is a monster. And he should not be in office, period. He has so many ethical and moral and leadership lapses that no one should seriously consider letting this man have his finger on the button again. I mean, this is this is craziness. Yeah, you think about his resume, Jamar. I mean, <laughs> if you or I or Dr. Carter or anyone we know showed up anywhere, or a job, or it showed up at a consultant's office like yours saying, I want to run for public office, not just any office, the highest office in the land. And here's my resume, or here's what they're going to find in opposition research. Uh, you know, you would tell them politely, sir, I, I think you ought to choose a different profession. Is it white male privilege? Let's just call it out. What is it about Donald Trump that is allowing him to maintain the lead in the Republican uh, nominating process to maintain the base of supporters that he has, given what the judge said today, basically deemed him a rapist. I mean, the judge was emphatic, unequivocal in the statement about don't get it twisted, don't get hung up on technicalities. This is rape. I mean, so what is it that is allowing this party that has otherwise been, I guess you could say, fairly reasonable to stick with him in light of the baggage that he brings? Well, I think that there's two things here. One that you just mentioned, white privilege, it runs throughout the Republican Party. And number two, you have a party who cares about power more than they care about morals. And so at the end of the day, Donald Trump to them represents their access, at least in their belief, to power and the way that he's able to go across the country, he's still able to keep a base of people that are loyal to him despite all of these indictments, despite all of his transgressions, that those voters are still loyal to him. And so the Republican Party still sees those voters as numbers at the end of the day. Uh, and they don't care how they have to get to power, especially in the highest office in the land. And so I think those are the two major factors that you're seeing and why the Republican Party is still supporting Trump. They're still willing to let him run. And they're not really calling him out or calling to an account uh, about anything that represents our country or anything that you should be required to serve in public office. But what does that say for other candidates? OK, so let's say, you know, they see him as the direct road that gets them through pathway that gets them to the highest uh, and most powerful position in this country, president. But what does that say for down ballot candidates that may have uh, a criminal record and not just any criminal record. And I, I don't think that just having a criminal record by definition should disqualify someone from running. Somebody may have some infraction that they've, uh, you know, something that they've been involved in. They've, uh, you know, been rehabilitated. And I think people should be able to, you know, I believe in second chances, Sure. but this is not a case of second chances. This is a guy that is involved, actively involved in, you know, uh, criminal conduct in 
Multiple so many cases. other areas. We haven't talked about the fraud with, you know, trying to sell the big lie. I mean, there's so many elements to this that, you know, this isn't about second chances. This would be about, you know, 25 chances. So what about those people down ballot? Do they get the same pass? Well, absolutely not. Not. Right? Sure they don't. Because, you know, I'm thinking of George Santos. George Santos looks like a choir boy compared to Donald Trump. So, you know, why are they calling, some Republicans were calling for him in New York to resign from his congressional district when we learned that he lied about his qualifications, that he Mm -hmm. lied about some of his financing for his campaign. He just lied. I mean, maybe he stole something in Brazil or something, but he hasn't been... Uh, adjudicated as having raped someone. He hasn't no. been federally indicted uh, for misclassified mishandling of classified documents. So should we just say, go ahead, George, do your thing? Well, I mean, I think that's what George Santos has said, right? Like he's not stepping down. Now, I think um, he has been uh, charged, right? Because he did lie on, on documents. Um, but I do agree that it does send a message that if we're going to be unserious about all of this, then no one needs to be serious about anything. But I mean, he's not the only one. I mean, we have an alleged uh, child sex trafficker currently serving in Congress right now. Right. And that still hasn't, I don't know, fully adjudicated. I don't know what the outcome of that, but no one talks about that either. So look, I definitely think the people were going after Santos because who is he after all? He is uh, a guy that just came out of New York. He is Brazilian. He is gay. He is all of these things that makes him very easy to pick on. He does not come with the voter base, the money, the name, the gravitas. And I'm sure he won't probably make it past this term in the state of New York. Yet, I think George Santos was right to say, well, unless y'all are going to drum me out or do something else, I'm not going to voluntarily give up this this paycheck and this insurance. Right? I can still be in Congress. I might not have any committees, but hey, you're paying me to essentially do nothing. That's not a bad deal. And it's not a terrible paycheck. Um, to hang out in D.C. and go shopping for a few months. Now, right about that, Jamar, real quickly, do you think this approach of no standards, let Donald Trump do whatever he chooses to do, and we're not going to hold him accountable, we're going to attack the system rather than deal with the merits of his conduct, do you think that's going to come back to haunt the Republican Party? Oh, absolutely. I think it's going to haunt them in the long run, but they're going to have to hit rock bottom before they realize that they have multiple standards. And almost what they send is it's, ethics for you, and I do what I want. Do as I say, not as I do. And that's what we're seeing, especially when they're continuing to support someone like uh, Donald Trump, you know, especially. But to your point earlier about down-ballot races, you know, someone having an infraction maybe when they were younger versus someone who's actively in criminal court uh, are two different things, right? And so we are able to forgive someone who may run for a school board and they had an issue 20 years ago. I'm not able to as easily forgive someone who's running for the highest office in the land who has international power, but they're actively involved in multiple cases of various crimes. Yeah, and we should note one of the potential indictments is going to be for obstructing uh, the peaceful transfer of power. So we're not just right. talking about run-of-the-mill crimes. We're talking about the crime that is the most uh, offensive to our democracy. When we come forward, we're going to talk about bail reform in Illinois, uh, Harvey Milk curriculum being removed in California, and Asian Americans who are out to get Ron DeSantis for what they say is legalizing hate against Asians. Stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. We are back. And in this hour, we are tracking today's breaking and trending news with my expert contributors, Dr. Niambi Carter and Jamar Brown. 
And in hour two, we are going deep on stories that have people talking. And today, that's the story of the 10th anniversary of Black Lives Matter. Uh, LA Times columnist has written, after 10 years, is this the beginning of the end for Black Lives Matter? And we're looking at where does police reform go after the failure of the defund the police movement? So make sure you stick around for hour two and have some experts that are going to help us break down what's happening with Black Lives Matter and police reform efforts. Uh, but let's let's talk about uh, this what's happening in colleges and universities. I was excited, Professor Carter, to see that this liberal arts college, uh, Wesleyan is uh, college in Connecticut is ending legacy admissions. We know that's uh, an admission process or that gives a leg up to children of alumni and friends of alumni and other folks that make large donations to colleges and universities. And, and this is coming after the Supreme Court struck down affirmative action in college admissions. So we get this one positive story because we know the NAACP and some other groups are suing colleges trying to end these uh, types of admissions. But then there's a story coming out of California about a school board trying to ban a curriculum that makes reference to a very prominent gay rights figure, Harvey Milk. So uh, we seem to take a couple of steps forward and then lots of steps backwards as it relates to you know what can be taught and how our entire education system is going to be structured. Uh, what do you make of this ending of these uh, you know legacy admissions and the story about not even allowing three paragraphs to mention a gay rights activist like Harvey Milk? Well, I mean, on the first, I mean, kudos to Wesleyan for taking the step. I mean, I think it's been something that people have long talked about and honestly should have been the focus of this of this Supreme Court case if people really actually cared about fairness in college admissions rather than trying to stick it to black and brown kids. That's my opinion. That said, I think it's far easier for universities to do that than it is for these local school boards where people have figured out that if they can get in there, they can really change how we learn and what we learn. I mean, Harvey Milk is not just a gay rights icon. It's actually really significant for California state history. So you have these kids who are going to grow up in a state and not only not only not know about this really pivotal person, but not know about this person who is pivotal to the state that they live in. So it's sort of like creating this 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 generation potentially of people will who will have no context for the lives they live. Like, why do we have curb cuts? Why is it that we do have, say, gender neutral bathrooms? Why is it that we do have, um, you know, these efforts to include um, uh, uh, limited English proficiency students um, in the curriculum? Like all of these things that people will just assume just exist, but will have no context for it. I mean, I think this is, again not about education. This is not about making sure people are well-rounded because if, you know, ideas are contagious, then we are all in danger, right? But uh, it's it's about trying to pretend and trying to remake the world in a particular kind of way that leaves out gay, bisexual, transgender, and lesbian people um, it's about creating a world that leaves out Black people and Native American people and Latino people and their culture and their history and what they've endured and what they've experienced, all for white comfort, quite frankly. And, and this is not about 
well, we're exposing the children to this idea or that idea. I mean, we expose children to violence every day. I mean, look at the school shootings. And it seems like people are more concerned about, you know, talking about Harvey Milk than they are talking about doing something about the things that actually endanger the lives of children. So I think this is just, you know, par for the course. This is all about posturing. This is all a show of, of power. This is all an attempt to, to whitewash and sanitize um, parts of history that make people uncomfortable, that they don't like, to even malign and marginalize communities. People don't view as legitimate or having a right uh, to speak back uh, to the rest of us. So, I mean, I think it's really unfortunate, quite frankly. Yeah, one of the individuals uh, affiliated with this group, this conservative group that's pushing to remove the par three paragraphs about Harvey Milk, called him, Jamar, a pedophile. Mm. Now, as far as I know, Harvey Milk has never been uh, accused of, uh, you know, molesting or, you know, pedophilia with respect to children, uh, definitely not convicted in a court of law. So these conservatives are going after Harvey Milk, uh, maligning him, calling him a pedophile. And I would venture to say these are some of the same conservatives that are willing to support Donald Trump for president of the United States after he has been adjudicated a sexual abuser or rapist, whichever term you want to use, both are legitimate now that that ruling has come out from this court. So how do they reconcile the these stark inconsistencies, the hypocrisy? President Trump can be the president having sexually abused and now raped E. Jean Carroll, but we can't have three paragraphs, three paragraphs in a curriculum about a guy that uh, was influential in California politics who just happens to be a gay guy. Well, the, I think this is a thing that you're seeing across the whole uh, conservative movement, right? You're seeing this thing where they just want to write history the way that they want to tell it. And so what they're doing with Harvey Milk is doing what they've done across all these states where they're rewriting history, they're whitewashing history, they're eliminating Black history out of classrooms, right? They've got this narrative where they want to push forward and they write it in the way that they want to while still upholding someone like uh, Donald Trump. And so I think that's the inconsistencies that you see. They decide what they want to tell. They put it, use the levers of power, whether that's in academia or in the legislature, and they use that to push the history that they want to tell uh, because there are certain things that we learn from our racist history. There are certain things we learn from slavery. There are certain things that we learn from the history of sexual assault in this country uh, that would actually make us better in terms of the laws and policies that we pass right, in terms of how we teach the new generation. But they don't want to do that. They want to live in the past because they don't want to really face some of these uh, realities or tell the truth in a lot of cases. And so you're seeing that across the country. And I think that's where you're seeing it. And I think how it's really- we expose this? Because I guess we know we're not going to change them, right? We're not going to change the hearts and minds of these people. We're not going to get them to see the, the sure. illogical nature of their positions, that it is illogical to go after uh, three paragraphs on Harvey Milk while at the same time support Donald Trump, who has been adjudicated a sexual abuser and a rapist. We're not going to convince people who are, you know, supporting Donald Trump. But how do we as a country make sure that we stop this madness? Because whether these people see it or not, we see it. And we know that there is, uh, you know, a gazillion reasons why someone like Donald Trump should never be in office again, but, you know, no office and definitely not the president. So how do we stop him from 
getting the, uh, he may get the, the Republican nomination. We don't control that because we don't vote in their primaries. But how do we stop him from becoming the president? Well, you know, I, I think it's it's really interesting that these people actually care about, you know, child sex abuse when we talk about Thomas Jefferson. And we know he had a relationship with a teenage Sally Hemmings and he was a 40 plus year old man. But beside that, a Donald Trump becoming president is really going to be about people deciding that they have had enough and turning out like they did in 2023. There's not going to be anything, like you said, to, to convince the people that are going to vote for him are going to vote for him and it won't matter. But the same turnout that people saw in 2022, I mean, sorry, 2020, excuse me, will need to be in 2024 because we can't assume like, oh, this guy won't win. That's what happened in 2016. Yeah. And so they cannot assume that. And so those get out the vote campaigns have got to go um, full throttle, especially in places like Georgia, Tennessee, Florida, in places where they are making it harder for people of color, especially to vote. Um, and we have to also talk, I think, about this no labels kind of upstart moment that is trying to make its place known. Um, because that's really going to probably take votes away from Democratic uh, nominee Joe Biden. And that's going to be a real issue, because if that does happen, then that does clear more of a path to Donald Trump, because he doesn't have to pick off every vote, but just enough, because in a place like Michigan, he only won by 150,000 votes. I mean, there is a world where those votes could go to a third party candidate. And I think that's something that we also have to talk about. But people have got to turn out. That's going to be the name of the game in 2020. Yeah. yeah. When we come forward, Jamar, I want to ask you what you are hearing uh, as a Democratic strategist and former head of the party in Texas about this no label uh, party yeah. and the potential that Joe Manchin might be running for president or some other third party candidate. We already know Cornell West, uh, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Robert Kennedy Jr. So they're already other candidates that Democrats and independents might be considering us uh, when we come forward, talk about what impact they may have on clearing a pathway for Donald Trump to win a re-election in 2024. Stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. All right, Jamar. So we know this no label, this so-called third party bipartisan group that is considering launching what they call a unity campaign in the 2024 presidential uh, election uh, on Monday, they hosted a major event to discuss their platform. And headlining this event was Senator Joe Manchin, Democratic Senator from West Virginia, and former Utah Governor John Huntsman Jr., who happens to be a Republican, and both hinted that they could have a unified party or unified in the sense that Joe Manchin and a Dem and John Huntsman, a Republican, would run on the same ticket. What are you hearing about this party and what a run by no labels might do to uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, as well as the Republican uh, ticket as well? Sure. I mean, I think there's two things to look at here. One, our politics is so hyper-partisan between the two political parties, right, in this two-party system that we've navigated for decades in this country. So I think that there's that. The second part, I think there is, especially amongst younger people, um, we definitely see that there's interest around student loans, right? There's interest around other educational opportunities. We just saw everything that happened with the Supreme Court even just a few weeks ago. And how does President Biden really message to young people? What does the GOTV programs look like, especially on college campuses where we're seeing attacks uh, on access to voting, right? And how young people vote, whether they vote at home or they vote on campus. Are there polling locations on campus or near campus? 
And so those that messaging and those GOTV programs are going to actually be essential because to Dr. Carter's point before our break, right, if you go to Georgia, Joe Biden won by 20,000 votes, less than 20,000 votes, right? And so every vote is going to count. But how does uh, President Biden and also Vice President Harris talk about the issues that especially young people and communities of color really care about when they're seeing this economic impact um, around inflation, when they're seeing things around student loan reform, and how do they plan to address it? But we have a split Congress, right, in that way. And so those are things that we have to start looking at when you see a no labels party, when people are just tired of hearing the names of the two parties uh, in that way. And so I think that it is a, a real factor in this election. Uh, and depending on who runs or if someone runs out of that, could they build the resources and build the campaign that takes away votes from either party? And I would say that that could potentially happen. And so it's being very mindful as Democrats how we really address issues and make voters feel more confident uh, in the Democratic Party that we are the party that is going to help advance the issues that they care about. So here's my problem, Dr. Carter. John Huntsman and Joe Manchin, two old white dudes offering some totally unrealistic DOA proposals like universal background checks for gun purchases, uh, no bans on abortion, securing the southern border while protecting the uh, dreamers or young immigrants. We've heard it before. And the Congress and Senate have labels. And the people that will be elected to Congress and Senate and the Senate have labels. So if you elect by, if some stroke of a miracle happens where these, you know, candidates, Joe Manchin and John Huntsman are elected, where's their party? Where's their base? That's the, we, we have a two-party system, but unless we're going to have a three-party system, we tried that in California. You know, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger was going to be this kind of independent candidate that wasn't really a Republican, wasn't really a Democrat. And it created chaos because the reality is the legislature in California are full of Democrats and Republicans. So I just don't know what would be the appeal to even vote for these two old white dudes if you're upset with two old white dudes who are going to be at the top of the <laughs> ticket for the Republicans or the Democrats. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think this is the issue that most people have. Like, this is why people are saying this is not a real effort, right? This is a way for people like Joe Manchin, who's been a bit of a stalwart person in the Democratic Party who's pushed the Democratic Party probably a little bit more conservative in the Senate than it would like to be at different points in time. Um, and I think this is an attempt for them to demonstrate themselves as sort of mavericks, but also it's a leverage thing, right? Because if you look like you're going to do something that could be potentially harmful, then maybe the party listens to you in a different way than it had before. Maybe they take you a bit more seriously. But for all the reasons you noted, this is why people are saying this is not serious. And this is why third parties traditionally have not been successful. They don't usually do well in our political system, which is first past the post, the person who gets the most votes wins kind of system. They do better in proportional voting systems. And this is why we don't see third parties parties more often. But I think the fact that they don't want to disclose who's funding their efforts, even though they're going to have to, they file a return. Mm -hmm. The fact that our parties, they organize the election calendar in various states. They organize the state legislatures. They make decisions about who gets to be on whose ballot. Heck, if you're an independent, you don't even get to run in a primary, right? Because you are an independent. That's not a party. So, you know, it really does take a lot of work if you are a 
third party person to actually make it on a ballot in a state in terms of the signatures you have to get. Every state and territory has a different requirement for how that works. It's a real intense labor. And it looks like they're just starting. So I don't know how at this late date they're going to make it in a real way into the election of 2024, but where they do, and they might be really strategic about what states they're going after, which is why they announced in New Hampshire, they can be real stinkers. And I don't like to use the term spoiler because I do believe that people have the right, like in this theoretical sense, but strategically, tactically, and, and, and statistically, they're not going to be successful, but they just have to peel off enough right. votes. And that's all they have to do. And they're appealing to people who don't like the, to call themselves a Democrat and don't like to call themselves a Republican, but they vote for Democrats and Republicans when push comes to shove because that's who they they are to vote for. That's who they yeah. appeal to, and those kind of contrarian voter. They're clearly, Jamar, not trying to appeal to younger voters because Joe Manchin won't even answer questions on climate change. Sure. And we know his issue with big coal and big oil in his state. So young folks are not going to flock to a candidate like that. Uh, and, you know, Dr. Carter called them centrist. Some would call them, you know, Republic, a Republican, a Democrat, uh, you know, a Republican that's posing as a Democrat. So I don't know who their base is other than perhaps some disgruntled Republicans and maybe there's some disgruntled uh, Democrats out there, but clearly not a, a large base. Hopefully, uh, somebody can get to Joe Manchin and help him come to his senses and realize that unless you are really trying to let, trying to help the Republicans win, you need to just, you know, sit down and chill out. We'll, we'll see what happens with that party. Uh, but before uh, we run out of time, I do want to ask you about this bail system in Illinois. Uh, other states have tried it. Illinois has gotten it done. They have now effectively created a system where you don't have to pay money to get out of jail. And we know all the arguments why uh, bail systems disproportionately disadvantage poor people, uh, people of color, you know, rich people do better. You know, if they could set a $20 million bail and, you know, rich people can have that pay within hours, if not minutes. Uh, do you think, Jamar, this uh, passage of this bill in Illinois now becomes a national model? I do think that it will become a national model. What we've seen, especially over the last three years in our country, is really looking at our criminal justice system and really fleshing out what are the disparities that we see in the system and how it impacts people, just as you said, right? Poor people, people of color, right? It's young people even as well. We can add that in there. Uh, and so I do think that there are going to be other states that look to uh, Illinois as a model. Illinois has passed a lot of legislation over the last year, uh, whether it's reproductive rights and abortion access, right? Whether it's voting rights and expanding that. Now we're looking at ending cash bail. Um, and really being able to do that. But the thing that I think that's important to name in this is that there's still stipulations that if someone is still a threat to society, right, uh, that they will still need to be jailed uh, because we know that the Republicans will then say, we're just letting everybody on the streets, right? And that's not necessarily the case. It's about taking down a barrier so that people are judged fairly and are able to move within the system fairly. Uh, and so I think that's important to name. But I do think that other states should look at that and look at what stipulations they can pass in their states. Obviously, legislatures and politics in other states are a little bit different. No, you're right. The minute uh, someone is released from jail uh, without having to post bail and they mm -hmm. commit another crime, which happens frequently, whether they, you know, bail has been posted or not, uh, you're going to have the law and order Republicans, the same law and order Republicans that don't want to hold Donald Trump 
to exactly. any legal standards, those same folks that don't see law and order when it comes to him will be, you know, uh, pointing the fingers at these soft on crime Democrats, as they will call us. But, uh, you know, hats off to those folks in Illinois that got that done. Like I said, other states have tried and they have uh, different uh, processes in place, but none as aggressive as eliminating the inherent disparities that cash bail creates. Again, the disparities between those who have and those who have not. So I hope that it does become a model throughout the country. We are out of time. Thank you so much, Dr. Carter. Always a pleasure to see you, my friend. Thank you, Jamar Brown. Likewise, always a pleasure to see you in hour two. Make sure you stick around. We're going to be talking about the anniversary, 10-year anniversary of Black Lives Matter. Uh, Is this the beginning or the end of that movement? And whatever happened to defund the police And what about police reform? Stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. Donald Trump is dominating the news again today. Uh, He says he's the target in the federal January 6th investigation. The former president apparently got a letter from the Justice Department saying that he is a target of a probe into efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Trump could soon face more federal charges. He has already been charged in a separate federal case in Florida over his alleged mishandling of classified documents. And in related news, Michigan yesterday charged 16 pro-Trump electors who falsely claimed to be casting the state's electoral votes in 2020. And a federal judge in New York today denied former President Donald Trump's request for a new trial in the defamation and battery case brought by E. Jean Carroll that resulted in a $5 million damage award. In doing so, the judge also clarified that despite Trump's team's uh, claims that the jury did not find that Trump raped Carroll, they are making a legal distinction without a real-world difference. The judge was emphatic that what the jury found Trump did was, in fact, rape as commonly understood. Trump had sought a new trial after the New York jury in May found him liable for sexually assaulting the former Elle magazine columnist in a Bergdorf Goodman dressing room in the 1990s, then defaming her in a 2022 Truth Social post by calling her allegations a hoax and a lie. And the federal judge presiding over Donald Trump's trial for allegedly mishandling classified documents, that's happening in a federal court in Florida, that judge appeared skeptical yesterday about the former president's request that the trial be delayed until after the 2024 election. U.S. District Judge Eileen Cannon also appeared weary of prosecutors' requests to begin the proceedings as soon as this year. The judge took the matter under submission and said she would issue an order with respect to the trial date. We are obviously going to be tracking that and will bring you that date as soon as we get the order from the judge. And in other news, a new CDC analysis shows that most people are dying after mixing opioids with cocaine and meth. The rate of overdose deaths involving both opioids and Cocaine nearly quadrupled between 2011 and 2021. In fact, in 2021, nearly 80% of cocaine overdose deaths involved an opioid. Most deaths appear to result from intentional mixing of the drugs. This is according to researchers. 
And a Southern California school board has become the latest proxy for culture wars brewing across the country after a conservative bloc voted to formally reject state-endorsed curriculum that would have mentioned gay rights figure Harvey Milk. On Tuesday, a heated Temecula Valley Unified School District board meeting dissolved into shouts and jeers as parents, teachers, and community members confronted each over confronted each other over a three-paragraph mention of milk and supplemental materials for students in grades one through five. Asian American advocates are slamming Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, for a land law that they say will legalize Asian hate. Under Florida law SB 264, those who are not U.S. citizens or permanent residents whose domiciles or permanent homes are in China are banned from purchasing property in Florida. Chinese nationals who violate the law could face $5,000 fines and up to five years in prison. And sellers who knowingly violate the measure could face up to one year in prison and $1,000 fines. Well, Illinois is set to become the first state in the nation to eliminate cash bail after its state Supreme Court ruled yesterday that a landmark criminal justice reform law did not violate the state's constitution. While other states have implemented similar reforms with varying degrees of success, Illinois will be the only state to completely do away with having to pay money to get released from jail. And a voting rights group filed a lawsuit against presidential candidate and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis this morning over the use of so-called election police and other alleged intimidation and voter suppression tactics aimed at citizens with felony criminal records. The Florida Rights Restoration Coalition and several individuals impacted by the state's policies allege that they violate the Voting Rights Act of 1965 hindering the rights of about 1.4 million formerly disenfranchised residents. You are watching and listening to Ariva Martin in real time, and I'm your host, Ariva Martin. This is your one-stop destination for today's breaking and trending news, expert analysis, and my unfiltered opinions. This is hour two of Ariva Martin in real time, and this is the hour where we dig a little deeper, we go behind the headlines, and we bring you those stories that people are talking about. Well, one of those stories is the current status of the Black Lives Matter movement and the movement to defund the police. Now, the 10th anniversary of Black Lives Matter was celebrated in Los Angeles and other cities across the country over uh, last weekend. And a Los Angeles Times columnist by the name of Erica Smith uh, wrote a July 16th column that reads, after 10 years, is the beginning, is this the beginning of the end for Black Lives Matter? She goes on to say, there are nagging worries about the controversies and dysfunction that have rocked the movement in recent years, and now new ramifications over a legal battle that has essentially turned the fundraising arm of BLM and the chapters of activists who spend their funding into direct competitors. There are also fears, according to the columnists, that the best years could be behind Black Lives Matter at a time when racism is being normalized by far-right Republicans at a rapid pace. 
There are questions, she says, about whether this anniversary could be the beginning of the end. When we come forward, I talked to a co-founder of Black Lives Matter for the Twin Cities, uh, who's also a member of the St. Paul, Minnesota School Board and Director of Criminal Justice Policy and Activism at the Wayfinder Foundation, and one of the nation's leading civil rights attorneys and experts on race and police reform, uh, UCLA law professor Joanna Schwartz. Uh, when we come forward right here on KBLA Talk 1580, more on the status of Black Lives Matter and efforts to defund the police. Stay with us. We are back, and this is our two of Ariva Martin in real time. And in this hour, we are digging deeper and in real time, asking our experts about Black Lives Matter and defund the police. These were two major movements that were uh, catapulted into the national spotlight, particularly after the murder of George Floyd in May of 2020. Uh, Some folks are asking, is the 10-year anniversary of Black Lives Matter the beginning of the end? And folks are wondering, whatever happened with the defund the police movement and the efforts to reform police departments. Uh, Again, that effort was front and center for the last couple of years. And here to help us understand what's going on with both movements is Chantel Allen. She's co-founder of Black Lives Matter in the Twin Cities. And she's a member of the St. Paul, Minnesota School Board and Director of Criminal Justice Policy and Activism for Wayfinder Foundation. Also joining us is Joanna Schwartz. She's a professor of law at UCLA Law School. Uh, She is also the recipient of UCLA's highest teaching honor, which she received in 2015, and the author of a new book on police reform called Shielded, How the Police Became Untouchable. Thank you so much, Chantel. And thank you, Professor Schwartz, for joining me. Uh, I want to start with you, Chantel. I read a passage from the column that was written by an L.A. Times columnist by the name of Erica Smith. Uh, she, I believe, was out attending one of the celebrations that uh, happened over the weekend by the uh, local Black Lives Matter chapter. And she asked the question, uh, you know, What's the status of Black Lives Matter in light of some of the uh, financial uh, issues that have come up, some of the uh, you know controversies, the, the lawsuits, and then the normalizing of racism by far-right Republicans? Mm-hmm. What's your response to uh, Erica Smith's or this columnist's question uh, about is this the beginning of the end for Black Lives Matter? I mean, you know, Black Lives Matter was a statement that resonated with a lot of Black people across America. It went beyond just the organization itself. And this is just a moment in in the long history of struggle for Black people to find liberation. Whether you say, you know, Black Lives Matter as that particular moment is the end, that's not going to stop the struggle. And so until Black folks have liberation, there's never really going to be an end. It's always going to be just evolving. And that's how I see it happening right now. Um, with the with the movement of gathering the grassroots organizations on the ground and restructuring the organization so that we can, you know, continue to move on. It's just an evolution. And what about you, uh, Professor Schwartz? You've been involved in uh, activist movements. Obviously, uh, many of uh, much of your work as a civil rights lawyer, I read, was focused on police reform. And I know the whole defund the police movement uh, became a part of the national conversation as Black Lives Matter 
that movement also was gaining more prominence. What do you think about the evolution of the movement uh, and its relationship to the defund the police movement? Well, I think both uh, this rise of Black Lives Matter and defund, uh, although they're part of our, you know, over the past couple of years, a decade for for Black Lives Matter been in the public consciousness. These are issues, um, as Chantel was saying, that that have been extremely important and 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 issues that people have been fighting for, Black Americans, particularly at the forefront of these fights for decades and decades and decades. And we've also seen for decades and decades and decades efforts to push down these uh, fights for justice. I mean, part of what I talk about in my book is that the fight against civil rights and the fight against uh, efforts to secure Black Americans' entitlement to the protections of the Constitution is, you know, is a fight that's been happening obviously since before the Civil War, but immediately after the Civil War as well, and ever since. And there have been highs and lows in that fight and movements forward, steps forward, and then steps back. This is exactly um, what we're seeing today. And yes, there is uh, a, a lot of opposition in the Republican Party, um, in state and local legislatures that have fought some of these issues uh, and fight these efforts at reform and shrinking the footprint of police. Uh, but I don't see any indication that this is the end of the fight. I mean, this is this is a path that has been traveled over and over again, and resistance to these fights for justice don't end the fight. It just continues the fight moving on. And Chantel, how active was your Black Lives Matter chapter in the Twin Cities uh, in terms of uh, pushing for police reform? And did that push involve advocating for uh, some efforts to defund the police department there in uh, Minneapolis? Yeah, I mean, there was a there was an effort where uh, the abolish the police got onto the Minneapolis uh, ballot. Um, it didn't pass. I personally, I do see uh, it necessary to um, strive towards abolition, but I also recognize that there's not a lot of answers for our Jeffrey Dahmers and those type of folks that are, you know, extreme murderers. And so, until we get to that point, um, which honestly the police budget is huge. And so like in St. Paul, you know, which is where I reside on the other side of the river from Minneapolis, you know, we're at about 11% defunded and it's going to take time um, for those programs to really produce the positive impact on community that are necessary. Uh, we've got some other things that are happening that are on the back end or the front end of helping communities uh, be stabilize themselves. And when that happens, there'll be less need for the police officers. As that need continues to grow, there's more resources that can go back into community to con continue to build stronger communities. And so um, here in the Twin Cities, you know, I, I see us still uh, striving forward, you know. And so, Professor Schwartz, the whole defund the police, uh, you know, it got really maligned in the media. Uh, I think it was uh, Congressman 
Clyburn, they called it sloganism, uh, and even Democratic leaders such as Clyburn and others walked away from it. What's your sense about what the movement was trying to accomplish and, and perhaps mistakes that were made in the way uh, either that it was rolled out or the way that it was talked about or the way that it was labeled? Well, I don't want to criticize, uh, you know, the the efforts uh, behind defund, which to my understanding, you know, is the, the goal, the ultimate goal of defund is to have a society and a community where police would be unnecessary, you know, in the future, not tomorrow. But the idea um, underlying defund, I think, is um, not to, uh, is to reinvest in the community in, in sort of front end efforts, uh, improvements to education, improvements to housing, improvements to social welfare, um, and uh, and make those changes such that you know police uh, end up becoming unnecessary. And you know, I, when I, I've seen a lot of polling, particularly amongst African Americans, that says that Black people overwhelmingly want the police. So that's why I'm, I'm a little confused, yeah. and I, I've always struggled with the defund the movement yeah. because it, it always seemed like when I would talk to everyday people and I would interview yeah. everyday people and look at the polling around it, there was the leadership of some of these movements pushing for that, but the folk that live in communities that are oftentimes crime ridden, et cetera, were yeah. never ever in favor of less policing. They wanted constitutional policing. They wanted policing that respected the human rights and the constitutional rights of individuals in their communities, but they were never ever in favor of abolishing the police. How do we yeah. reconcile the, the efforts of what may be the leadership with the polling of black folks in particular in you know neighborhoods across this country? So I think part of the issue may be about, you know, defund sounds like taking away. And if there is a messaging problem, in my view, you know, the focus, if you sort of get past that slogan, is about investing funds, but investing funds in, in other ways. And, and to take one example, um, people, you know, there is a lot of criticism of the language of defund the police. But if you talk to people about the idea of having trained mental health professionals respond when people are in mental health crisis instead of police. It's hard. I mean, I don't know what the, I don't know what the figures are, but, but it's, it's hard to my view to disagree with that idea that having trained mental health professionals involved um, as the responders when someone's in mental health crisis is an idea that people can get behind. Now that's consistent with the idea of defund. You know, it's it's moving resources toward mental health professionals, but perhaps yeah, so, it's framed in that way. It's an it's a way that people could more get behind that idea. Yeah, I think for many people, it became a binary choice. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's either or either we have mental health professionals or we have the police. And mm -hmm. I, I would agree with you that most people probably uh, would want mental health professionals when there's a mental health profession. Uh, when there's a mental health crisis, that's not a dangerous crisis. But I, I think to Chantel's point earlier about the Jeffrey Dahmers of the world, if there is a crazed and, and very, you know, dangerous person, uh, you know, 
is it appropriate to talk about a social worker or a psychologist having to respond to a call and be expected to confront someone that maybe has a AR-15 rifle? I mean, I, so I, I guess, Chantel, when I think about defunding or even moving resources, we have such a, you know, we have an epidemic of, of guns in this country. We're such a violent country, unfortunately. And I, I think mean, that's I think what a lot of Black folks are responding to when they say they want police. Yeah, I mean, and I think we should really look at a lot of the resources that are not attached to actual police officers. When we think about the amount of money that goes into, you know, uh, what I call popsicle pictures, you know, the amount of money that they put into police departments to engage with community um, and, and the amount of money that they put in there for militarized trainings and the tear gas and the rubber bullet, all of the things that are unnecessary to use against regular civilians, um, that amount of money is, is, is a lot. We ain't even touched the police officers yet. So let's take those dollars. And do you believe, though, let me ask you this, do you believe those pro, many of those programs where that money is being directed are effective? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I mean, we have to look at, you know, who, who really needs to engage in our community. When we talk about young people, we need youth workers, not police officers. And so why is there such a, a, a small amount of money in those pots, but such a huge amount of money in these other pots, when we know for a fact that the engagement with young people and providing resources and opportunities to, to find success prevents criminalization? You know what I'm saying? And so we have to put the money in the pots that work. We have to put it into the housing. We have to put it into the mental health services so that our, our communities are stabilized. And with that, with that, there's way less. The police officers will have time to actually solve some crimes. Right. I know we focus on those violent kinds of crimes that are unsolved in our police department. So, what is the money really being used on, other than harassing black people in the community? Yeah, one of the things we see, Professor Schwartz, is always uh, the power of the police unit. Uh, union. So whenever there are efforts to move money from the police budget to some of those social service budgets, we see the union, you know, rise up. And even after, I'll say the height of the defund uh, movement, when you saw certain cities move dollars to uh, social service organizations or their social services departments, slowly but surely, a lot of that money was moved right back into the big fat police budgets because of the power of the police unions and because of the power of law enforcement in our country. So how do we, uh, you know, give more power to people and less power to those unions that have been able to not only dominate, you know, city budgets, but also, as you write about in your book, uh, maintain systems that prevent accountability? Yeah, I mean, the power of the police unions are are really remarkable. Um, you know, one one interesting thing about this idea of not defund in those terms, but about getting police out of the job of responding to people in mental health crisis, homeless issues, people, ha you know, nonviolent car accidents. In L.A., the police in Los Angeles, the police union supports getting out of the business of doing those things. And the union officials have said, basically, we're not psychologists. We're not mm -hmm. mental health professionals. We're not social workers. Let us not do that stuff and focus on the crime fighting. So there right. actually okay. might be okay. a place well, where we could agree. Wait a minute, Professor. They say that, 
But the have they been willing to relinquish parts of their budget? Because we know under Mayor Garcetti in Los Angeles, there was a you know some percentage of that budget that was moved out of the police, uh, and then it was moved right back to the police. So they say they're not psychologists; they don't want to be in the business of mental health. But are they willing to put their money where their mouths are? Uh, when we come forward and continue this conversation about where the movement of reforming uh, the police is, and where what are grassroots activists in this moment thinking about how they continue to push forward with police reform? Uh, stay with us, KBLA Talk 1580. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. We are back. And in this hour, I'm talking to Chantel Allen. She's the co-founder of Black Lives Matter in the Twin Cities. And also Professor Joanna Schwartz. She's a professor of law at UCLA. And she is the author of a new book called Shielded, How the Police Became Untouchable. We're talking about the status of the defund the police movement and its relationship to Black Lives Matter, uh, that movement, which some are questioning uh, where it goes from here in light of uh, recent the recent backlash we've seen from Republicans uh, and what some call the normalizing of racism in this country. Uh, so, Professor Schwartz, we were talking about L.A. and you said that the police department has welcomed the idea that uh, mental health professionals will provide uh, mental health support and get police out of the business of mental health. But I, I was just looking back at what happened in L.A. after George Floyd's murder in May of 2020. And the then mayor vowed it was like June of that year to cut the budget of the police by one hundred and fifty million dollars, faced an immediate backlash by the police union. Uh, And then for the 22-23 budget, there was a 6.5% increase to the L.A. Police Department's budget. And currently their budget is 26% of L.A.'s overall budget. So police say they want to get out of the mental health business, but are they willing to relinquish (laughs) any of that big fat budget? (laughs) Well, I'm not, you know, we don't we don't talk all that much. So I, I'm not I'm not exactly sure. My guess is no. But I also think sort of reckoning, hearkening uh, back to to part of the conversation we were having earlier in the hour, these struggle struggles, these efforts at reform take multiple steps. I don't think that there's going to be a transformation of the way in which the city uh, or county of Los Angeles provides its mental health services, you know, in a in an instant. Uh, I think the fact that the police union has an interest in getting out of the business of doing mental health work, um, mental health response and, and other kinds of responses where there's not a need for someone with a gun or someone with arrest power is going to be the first step. And then it's going to take a lot of work to build up the infrastructure and capacity to have community organizations and other non-police personnel to respond to these events. And then there's going to be extra money that's gonna have to go toward those other services. And then eventually there's going to be conversation about what the, how many police we need and what they're doing. If you look at other parts of the country, Um, There have been these kinds of responders. In Eugene, Oregon, there's been a mental health response unit that doesn't involve the police for over 30 years. And the way it happened, it starts as a pilot program, then it gets bigger, then it gets bigger, then there's more money used to to fund this. And and in Eugene, um, they estimate that 
they're saving over $20 million a year by having this response. It means that people aren't having to go to emergency rooms and aren't being arrested that otherwise would be if the police were involved. So I don't think the, the long answer to your question, I don't think the police are going to be applauding reducing their budget. And my guess is that L.A. is not going to try to reduce their budget anytime soon. But let's see how this process works and start getting people in place, a core in place to try to provide these services that we really don't need the police to do. Study it, see how it works, see how effective it is, see what kind of money it saves, see how how calls are reduced perhaps to police. And then there might be a, a reason, a justification to try to rethink the budget. We we see uh, Chantel, particularly it was Minneapolis, right, where the feds just came out with the scathing report about the Minneapolis Police Department and basically forced the, the department into a consent decree, which is an agreement with the Department of Justice to make uh, systemic changes to that department. That just happened, I think, I don't know, about six weeks ago. I remember that big press conference. Uh, what has been happening in terms of the implementation of some of those mandates, I won't even call them recommendations, mandates by the Department of Justice? And, and how are community leaders like yourself feeling about the Minneapolis Police Department's efforts to implement those changes? I mean, everything is always slow. You know, everything always moves slow. And, and you know, they're not anxious to try to relinquish any kind of power that they have. Um, I do know that they are are trying to end all low-level stops. Um, and and the, the petty stuff, but they're not really, you know, it, it's a slow ball moving, right? They're they're like, yeah, okay, this happened. So now what do we do? We've got to form a committee. And then that committee has to meet to meet. And then they got to meet about when they're going to meet again. <laughs> you know what they have to study it. Then they have to write a report. <laughs> you gotta, yeah, exactly. Write about the report. Yeah. Exactly. It, it's slow so, you know, I don't, I don't see much really happening on the ground, you know, where I'm at moving around any different than what I saw, you know, two, three years ago after George Floyd was murdered. And so um, I still get reports of people being harassed. I still still hear about um, we, we haven't had any murders in the last couple months, but, you know, I mean. It's still happening. Police are right. police. And I think that's why they're, the young people were really focused on abolishing it. Because there is no real reform that's going to liberate us from uh, slave catchers. And we have to be very clear about that. We have to be very clear of who they are and what they what they stand for. And the fact that we still have slavery language in our Constitution, in our federal Constitution, and in our state Constitution, the police department are always going to just police, right? And I think the next move is to really get to the root of things, which is eliminating some of that language, some of the slave language out of the 13th Amendment statewide um, until we can get the feds to get on top of it and, and call a constitutional convention to eliminate it that way. But we have to well, keep pushing forward. Well, we have a UCLA award-winning law professor, so let's talk about that language. <laughs> <laughs> I happen to have the perfect person to respond to that language that is still embedded in our, uh, you know, constitutional amendments. Uh, what do we do about that, Professor Schwartz? Well, uh, we certainly could uh, have a constitutional convention and 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 work to change 
the language, you know, I, and I think that, I think that language is powerful and, you, you know, it's important to, um, to, to recognize that the 13th amendment, um, continues to allow for, uh, for involuntary servitude, for slavery, um, as a punishment for a crime. <clears throat> and, um, as has been, you know, so powerfully, um, illustrated in 13th, you know, the, the, the way in which our current criminal justice system, uh, operates, uh, it exposes disproportionately, uh, Black Americans, um, Indigenous, Latino uh, Americans to the uh, two criminal sanctions, and then you know is this loophole? Um, you know, I think the question about how we move forward and and whether it's you know focusing on that that uh, amendment um, or on uh, you know other work at the the more local level. Um, is sort of an open question. I mean, I think there's more than enough to be done at every at every step of the way. And I guess my thoughts uh, are always to keep the most ambitious visions in mind, and also to be working incrementally day to day to try to make the current uh, the current world life uh, better than it is. When we come forward, I want to talk about consent decrees with you, oh, yeah. uh, Professor Schwartz. Uh, Chantel just said she doesn't see any or feel any real difference in Minneapolis. And we know that the DOJ came out and slammed that Minneapolis Police Department, the, the police department were, that was responsible for the murder of George Floyd. Uh, the Los Angeles Police Department has been under a consent decree and there are dozens other around the country. Is that the solution uh, to police reform, or is it a federal bill like the uh, reform bill that's been stalled in Congress? Or what is it going to take to reform our police departments around this country short of abolishing them? Uh, stay with us, KBLA Talk 1580. All right, uh, Dr. Uh, Professor Joanna Schwartz, so you've written a book called Shielded, How the Police Became Untouchable. And what I was reading about the book, it says it's filled with Vivid stories illustrating the many ways in which the American legal system shields officers from accountability and prevents victims from receiving justice. Uh, we were talking about ways to move reform efforts forward. Uh, ask uh, Chantel, uh, who is the co-founder of Black Lives Matter in the Twin Cities, Minneapolis and St. Paul, about the consent decree involving the Minneapolis Police Department. What are your overall thoughts about the effectiveness of uh, federal consent decrees. We know they weren't used under Donald Trump's administration. Uh, the Mayor Garland administration uh, has been much more aggressive under their civil rights department of going into police departments, doing these exhaustive investigations, writing these very comprehensive uh, documents mandating systemic change. Uh, you know, depending on who you listen to, the results of these consent decrees has been mixed. So I should say in Minneapolis right now, there's been this initial report, but they haven't yet negotiated the consent decree. So the first thing that happens is that the DOJ goes in, spends a lot of time talking to people, reviewing documents and writing this exhaustive report that outlines all of the problems. Then they have to negotiate what the exact terms are, what the city's going to do. And then they hire or appoint a monitor who can go in, reports back to the court about whether those changes are happening. 
I think the general, my general view is that the process is slow. The process is expensive and the process does seem to work, uh, at least to some degree. Now work doesn't mean the problem, you know, that things are fixed. It might mean that pretextual stops go down. It may mean that uses of force go down. I don't think that, that these are total fixes, but I think that they are improvements. I also think it's worth noting that what the Department of Justice asks for in its consent decrees have changed a bit over time. So if you look at the Minneapolis report, we don't have the consent decree yet. Part of what they talk about is the same things that have often been talked about, improvements to use of force training and internal investigations and hiring, supervision, things like that. They're also talking about the fact that Minneapolis has a mental health response team that doesn't involve police. And part of the recommendation by DOJ is that that's, that program get more money, get more funding, get more people. And so that is um, something that has been mentioned in other, I think in Louisville and some other consent decrees. But this is kind of a new set of um, demands that the Department of Justice is making. And mm -hmm. I'm really optimistic about that additional um, approach to the DOJ's consent decrees, not just training and supervision, but also this same question that we've been talking about. Let's ask what the police should be doing and what's better done by other other uh, trained people. I think one of the issues, you know, you can't talk about police reform without talking about the issue of implicit bias, without talking about the image or, or the uh, the way that police interact with Black uh, suspects or individuals, you know, Black people in general, uh, when they confront them on the street or whether they're in a, their homes or a public place. And there's this notion that, you know, many police see Black people, particularly Black men, as inherently dangerous. And that when they encounter a Black male, they, you know, they, they react differently. And the reason we have the, the brutality, the murders, the, the shootings, the killings of, of Black men, in particular by police, is the, the way that Black men are thought about in this country and the way that many white uh, and, and even police officers of color, because it's not just always white on black, it's oftentimes police of color. How do we get to that? Because that's something that's uh, very difficult. We can't legislate hearts and minds. We can't you know, change that in a consent decree. But in the work that you've done, Professor Schwartz, what, what is the most effective way to deal with this perception around black men, particularly as dangerous? Look, I mean, this is a problem not just with policing, right? This is this is a problem with America uh, and the implicit bias and racism that you know that that is is not just limited to the police force. I think that there have been studies and research about trying to measure whether implicit bias training works, um, to what extent that it works, um, and there's certainly efforts to to try to do that training to try to improve in that training. Um, my own sense is, and I've, you know, have, have, have said a version of this before, but is thinking about limiting the kind of um, authority that police have to do these stops. You know, there's a lot of research that has been done that shows that um, when officers or anybody is forced to make a split second rapid decision, 
They make mistakes. Not only do they make mistakes, implicit biases and biases become even more pronounced. So Mm -hmm. when we have officers doing traffic stops, for example, um, stopping someone on a, you know, on a highway, for example, for a taillight, um, and the officer has been trained in his training that um, he's likely to get hurt or shot or assaulted, even though that's that's not actually true if you look at the at the data uh, of how often those kinds of things happen during traffic stops. But you have an officer stressed, thinking that they're in danger, coming up, you know, and and see a black man in the car, and all of the implicit biases that are already there are are even more powerful. So why are we? Let's t- turn. You can try to improve that officer's response, but also let's pull back the lens. Let's think about why this stop is happening in the first place. Let's think about you know, do we actually need to have that interaction at all? So you're saying. Do what we can in terms of implicit bias, but let's change the number of encounters that police have with civilians, pedestrians, motorists, and that by changing the number of encounters, we, by definition, will reduce the number of uh, opportunities for them to use force, excessive force against individuals. What do you think about that, Chantel? I mean, I agree. I just, you know, St. Paul just ended all pretextual stops. And, you know, I I travel a lot, wasn't paying attention to my tabs. And I got a letter in the mail from the police department that they noticed that my tabs were expired and I should go get them redone. And I thought that that was a great way to inform me rather than hitting the cherries, making that sound that, you know, instantly sends anxiety through all Black bodies. Um, And then, you know, having to have that interaction at all. And so I just went and got my tabs and now we're good. And I haven't, I didn't get no extra ticket. I didn't have to interact with a police officer who might've been fearful because I look masculine, you know, um, and, and something bad could have happened. So I think that, you know, that's the direction we need to be going. We need to be, they need to be more help than harm. And, and that's ways that they can do that. And are you finding, uh, Professor Schwartz, are police departments around the country looking at ways, uh, other than at the mental health issue, that they can reduce the number of encounters? Because uh, it sounds like, you know, there are lots of ways that we as civilians can think of that police won't engage with the public. But what are police thinking, are departments thinking about pulling back from some of those encounters? Because again, if they have less encounters, they need less people. And if they need less people, they need less budget. So it all goes back to money. Yeah. So the, you know, the, the two areas that I've seen the most movement on are response to mental health, uh, people in mental health crisis and these low level traffic stops um, and efforts to get police out of the business of traffic stops is underway in Philadelphia. It was being considered in Minneapolis. I'm not sure what's, you know, whether that's true as well as in St. Paul, in LA, in Los Angeles, in, in uh, Berkeley. Um, it's, it's, these are ideas that are happening around the country. As far as the police and the police budgets go, you know, you're also hearing that police can't recruit enough officers and we're, are having challenges recruiting officers. So in some ways I want to say, look, <laughs> Problem solved. Like, let's take some of your responsibility um, to, you know, to, and and divert it to to other groups that can fill those responsibilities, and you don't have to worry about traffic stops 
anymore. Um, but of course, I, I say that, but of, you know, of course, when you when it comes down to dollars and cents, there's going to be fights. There's going to be there's going to be challenges about this, and the unions often win. But you know, we'll we'll see. Um, we'll see once there's more responsibility that's being given to other groups other than the police. Those union those uh, budget conversations might look different. Yeah, we didn't get to talk about it. And we're running out of time, but I definitely want to talk about the reform movement uh, that we saw that impacted prosecutors because prosecutors also play a big role uh, in what happens with police departments because, you know, our prosecutors prosecuting those low level offenses. Uh, we saw in Illinois today the uh, elimination of cash bail. That's another uh part of the reform effort that has been taking place all over this country. So lots is happening uh, for sure. And for those folks that think the defund the police movement may be dead, uh, the phrase may not be used as often, but there are activists like Chantel and others who are still doing the work of trying to make our police uh departments around this country and our criminal justice system in general, more equitable, more fair, uh, and remove uh, the, uh, implicit bias, as well as the excessive force and the disproportionate negative treatment of African-Americans. So thank you so much, Chantel, for your work. Thank you, Professor Schwartz. Your book, Shielded, How the Police Became Untouchable. It's a new book just out this year. Uh, make sure you pick up a copy of it. Appreciate the work that you do on this issue. So valuable to have uh, a law professor, civil rights attorney like yourself, uh, engaged in this work. Uh, I'm out of time. And the next